0: Apples to apples, though, if you were to advise someone to be working in an industry or to learn certain skills that would allow them to acquire more wealth, what were, would some of those skill sets, industries, or time that they're spending be shifted towards, so let's say for someone in their early 20s or even in their late 20s? I got a piece of advice that was killer. <music>
1: I'm going travel a lot but I, I live between little Cayman and Grand Cayman I'm in Grand Cayman today
0: cool cool well yeah it's re- great to connect uh, obviously I've seen all of your videos on YouTube and um, love the message that you're putting out there the opinions that you have um, I, I wanted to you know dig into some of the you know I th- I, what I really caught my eye is kind of some of the contrarian thinking and how you explain your viewpoint on online in your videos and I'd love to know you know, as an investor, particularly, how you've cultivated this contrarian thinking, uh, which has probably helped you with your investments and spreading your message.
1: Yeah. I don't, I'm not a purposeful contrarian. Some people do that as a badge of honor. Hmm. What I try and do is build an economic framework based around a lot of work that I do based around the business cycle, technical analysis, you know, economic fundamental analysis, and then say to myself, okay, we know what the present state of the world is, but what is the probabilistic outcome of where it's going based on the facts that we know now? And that's what catches most people off. Most people don't join dots and look forwards. So the world of macro investing is a world where you live in the future and figure out what is the probability of that of the world going there there's sometimes there's a lot of probabilistic outcomes and other times there's like two, it's pretty binary. So that that is the key thing to learn is to figure out what is the state of the world in six months or 12 months forward, not today. Or if you're looking at big secular trends, what is the trend in the next 10 years, not today's trend. For example, if you were to look at today's trends, you might say the Indian economy is sluggish and not that exciting. Filled with bureaucracy. When you look at the secular trend, you say average age of 28, growing as one of the fastest growing economies in the world over time, low debt, and a massive Cambrian explosion in technology. So, therefore, is that likely to be better in the future than it is today? And again, we'd ask ourselves questions with today, is inflation going to be here forever, which is becoming the narrative? So what I tend to do is question market narratives. That's the contrarianism versus the work that I do. So I don't just question it for the sake of questioning it. I do it and say, well, for inflation to be here in a year's time, what would have to be true? We would have to see all prices continue to rise at 9% over the next year or two. Is that probable? Well, not if we have a recession. So therefore, what is the most likely outcome for inflation? Lower. Then the question is, is by how much? And that's when you start doing other work. So it's it's many people just look at the state of the world today and say, yeah, it's screwed. And they don't look forward to say, okay, what will it look like in 12 months' time?
0: Hmm. Why do you think that's the case? Why, why do you think humans... Have such a difficult time doing that. Do you think it's just that humans millions of years ago we just adapted to not being able to think so far ahead and have that longer term, more logical thinking? Because we're just I yeah. think it's a trained,
1: it's it's a trained muscle, I think. I think you know, if you were a more successful hunter in you know Neolithic ages, you'd have been somebody who can anticipate where the animal is going, and then you'd figure out, okay, well. There's ways of anticipating where the animals are. And then there's anticipating, okay, what the season and when. And the better people are the people who figure that out. And it's a trained muscle. So most people don't really need to figure it out. They go to their job, they do their job, they go home. Now, if you if you build a business, you actually automatically are forced to look into the future because you have to try and get to a future state. And you have to affect that change. With financial markets, you can't affect the change. Many people make the mistake of saying, I wish it to be so, and therefore I'll want it. I wish the Federal Reserve didn't exist. Well, they do. So you have to understand how do they work. And that's much like the Neolithic man hunting. You need to understand the beast that you're dealing with and how it operates. So I just think many people aren't taught that skill. And you learn it. And I learned it by observing others. Um, I observed, I was lucky enough to be in a position where I was working at Goldman Sachs and I would be speaking to the world's most famous investors. And I remember seeing how they didn't operate in the present, they operated in the future and would be joining the dots with their investment. If this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And that third step is where they made all the money. It's only when everything goes to that moment of the correlation of one, do they care about the present. That's when you put on maximum risk or whatever it is, you had those famous George Soros moments, but those are rare. Most of the time you're having to live out in the future instead.
0: Right, right. And how much of that is looking at past data points and using that to make future decisions versus perhaps looking and and looking into more of the future without knowing that there's going to trend. So for example, like a lot of people think linearly, but it's very hard for humans to think in exponential terms such as like network effects or how how viruses spread. It seems to be a trend where we, we, we think either it's going to go linearly upwards or linearly downwards. It's really hard for humans to really understand what exponential growth or exponential decrease could look like. Um, so how, how does that play into how you think about markets and, and investing? I, I think that's a it's a really important thing because... A lot of the world is cyclical,
1: and we're trained to believe in cyclicality and linear thinking. Now, what's incredible is economists are linear. They write models. The models do not represent the real world, because if you show a small child a chart of GDP, it goes up and down in a cycle. We know the economy is cyclical, yet economists build a steady state model, right? So we know that's wrong. But then many of us understand cyclicality, booms and busts, and that becomes law to us. But it's not law. It's law to some things. Exponentiality is something that you see most often in technology, viruses and other stuff. And at this point, you have to understand trend rates of growth. And is this cyclical or not cyclical? Is the adoption of AI cyclical or not? I mean, anybody will tell you it's not. It's a secular trend change. So therefore, why would you want to short companies that are involved in this business? You, you should be biased only towards buying them. Now, whether at what value, and what price? Okay, that's a market timing issue. But you know you're armed with exponential growth. And people don't see that because they fear it. Because if I say to you, oh, well, AI is about to go exponential, as are the robots. The first thing that happens to you is fear. It's like, what the fuck does this mean to me? Right? So you start now clouding with emotion. And it's like, I don't want that. I don't believe in this world. I want to go back to the Mustang and the days of gasoline and you know where we would go and go to the ball game with our hot dogs whatever it is right whatever you anchor onto the past for safety so people really fear change because change is unknown so how you have to deal with it is embrace it if you know there's a secular trend change then embrace it because then is where it's where the magic happens all the magic happens outside of your comfort zone. It's never in your comfort zone. So there's a circle, which is the universal set of my comfort zone. And then the magic happens in an entirely different area outside of that. Mm. And it's the same with investing, it's the same with life in general, is you need to be out of your comfort
0: zone and understanding it's okay not to know, but to embrace. What's if, can you think of something that's happened in your life where that's been, that really, that decision to live outside of your comfort zone really had a pivotal moment? What's something that that's happened in your life that you can, that you can remember? Maybe it's starting. I've lived my life according to that. Mm. I've lived
1: my life according to that. So one of the things I was working for a hedge fund, a famous big hedge fund doing very well. And I quit. And I decided to go and move to the Mediterranean coast of Spain and try something I've never tried before, which was writing. And that was uh, outside of my comfort zone because I gave up a lot of potential future income. Right. Starting Real Vision, something I knew nothing about was even how to make a video, let alone run a company. But outside the comfort zone is where the magic happens. So I want to embrace it because I saw the opportunity. Blockchain technology, another one you know, outside the comfort zone. I don't know where this is going. I don't know what this really means, but I think I've got an idea and I want to be involved. Um, So I actually live my life according to this. I go around the world diving with sharks. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. Or I love trekking across deserts. Why? Because it's dangerous. Not because I'm a thrill-seeking junkie. It's because you learn about yourself and the world around you when you're outside your comfort zone. Mm. Um that's why I like travel in general. I like to be in situations that is not a five star hotel with hot and cold run running flunkies. You wanna be in a backpacker hostel where you don't know who the, what the hell's going on and you can't speak the language. Why? Because the magic happens there. The magic's yeah. never gonna happen in a fucking Ritz Carlton in mm-hmm. some city. It's just never gonna happen. But it will happen when you take yourself out of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you certainly will appreciate what you already have. When you're in these uncomfortable moments, as well, right? You can always you can be more grateful for for what you have.
1: Yeah, and gratitude's a really important thing because if mm. not, you get complacency, you take everything for granted. But once you realise that, you know, when you're living in a desert for a, a couple of weeks, you realise that life and death is a decision away. It makes you really appreciate the security of the lives that we have. But if you hadn't have done that, you're watching the media. You think everything's terrible. It's the worst possible thing. And you don't actually realize how easy life is compared to what it's like for others mm. or what Mother Nature can throw at you. Mother Nature's a great humbler, right? Because, you know, you can be here on the Caribbean Sea and it's beautiful, turquoise, flat, calm. But my God, when the hurricane comes, that sea is terrifying and it's completely out of your control.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your entrepreneurship journey because we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this podcast and I noticed that you bootstrapped Real Vision from the beginning. I'd love to know what the decision for that was and, and eventually when you did take some funding, what were some of the frameworks that or questions that you asked yourself to eventually take an outside capital, kind of talking about all these things we're talking about, risk and, and, um, and playing it safe versus being uncomfortable?
1: You know, we've taken, again, a very peculiar journey. So we start Real Vision, we bootstrap it ourselves, put in some capital, start growing it. It's a subscription-based business, so it has revenue, so you know that helps. But you want to expand, and your revenues aren't enough, so you want to raise some capital. At that point, any sensible, rational human being would have gone down the VC route and said, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to build the world's biggest blah, 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 and here, give us a bunch of money on a high valuation. We didn't because we had access to capital. So my network of people um, from both writing Global Macro Investors, so that's the world's most successful hedge fund managers, family offices, sovereign wealth funds, that and the people who were watching Real Vision because the people who were gravitating towards Real Vision were smart, were successful. And so I actually, the first time we raised capital, I just wrote to my subscribers for Global Macro Investor, which is my kind of institutional research service, said, listen, this is what I'm doing with Real Vision. Uh, We want to raise some capital. Are you interested? And we raised $5 million in about a week. like, wow. "Wow." The next time we went to raise capital, we thought we'd ask our members because the US had passed the the Jobs Act that allows you to crowdfund from accredited investors. Mm. So we're like, okay, fine as long as you've got an existing relationship with them. So we just wrote to our members and said, listen, we're raising capital for growth. That's what we want to do. And we raised $10 million in a week. We're like, wow. oh my God. So now we've got a business being funded by our customers. Not only are they subscribers, but they're investors as well. And up to present date, we've raised about $40 million for Real Vision a hundred percent of it has come from our community wow. we have never raised money yes we happen to have lion tree one of the most famous media investment banks they happen to be in our network so they said listen we want to we want to come in a bit on this not a big ticket and another vc people who happen to be real vision fanatics. so but we don't have we've never done the traditional vc thing we may mm. do at some point because we want to raise you know once you start raising more capital because you've got you know, very big ambitious plans and, you know, Real Vision has been growing at you know, 50, 60% plus for a long time now. You know, we, we need more capital to do those plans. Um, So we will have to step outside our comfort zone and actually go and talk to bigger VC investors and strategic partners, but we've never needed to because we've got an incredible community. They passionately yeah. believe in what we do and that's that's a superpower for us, but it's also probably hurt us somewhat because, you know, having great strategic VC partners opens up other
0: opportunities that we wouldn't have had that we didn't have. Right. Right. But the way you guys did it, it seems that when you are ready for a VC, it's a position where you don't necessarily need it, but it's really a lot of it is upside by bringing on those people at the right time. Whereas I think a lot of entrepreneurs, we even without a product or any, any form of just really just with a vision, uh, but no real business model. They set out you know, on a marriage with VCs and they don't really know how to spend the money, what that, what's really going to get them to the next step.
1: That's know. right. And also you find that the VCs take such egregious terms early on that the staff and the founders end up giving away so much of the business. But because these people were highly aligned with us, our investors... They all came on as ordinary shareholders. There was no preference. And we we're all in this together. And that's really nice. There's something in that that, that feels right.
0: Yeah, and, and going around. And yes, going-
1: of course. When we take on a big
0: Okay. Oh, you
1: know, when we take on a big VC, we will probably have to give away preference at that point. But not having done that, where we're all on equal terms, is kind of very nice.
0: Yeah, and the contrarian thing to, to add on there is, I think, when a lot of media outlets are going for the trend is really more short-form, punchy headlines, free-based business model. You really did the opposite, which is providing tons of value for um for really the a, a very segment of users and going the paid route, and you know to the point where like you're actually raising money from your own community. It's really a 180 to what traditional media. Has been doing for many years, and there is still really going towards that trend. Um, so it, it speaks yeah. to a lot of. I mean, the long
1: form, the long form content model in finance didn't exist before Real Vision. Nobody was doing it. We, we we basically invented it. Everybody else was doing short form CNBC stuff, and we were like, no, we're doing hour long interviews. You know, podcasts like this did not exist before Real Vision. People don't realize that. So we've been pioneers, and. You might think of us now as a media company. We think of ourselves more as a community, but where we go is actually outside our comfort zone further, and we're going to build the super community of finance based about a whole bunch of communities. We've just bought, for example, a family office network. We got the crypto community. We started Real Vision India with student programs, all sorts of stuff, and then we're building the super platform of finance as well, which is going to be the place where everybody can live their financial lives. So I can't let too much out of the bag for that, but. That's what we're building. So it's a much bigger vision of creating the kind of place that we all want to live our financial lives and hang out with the tools and experiences that we all need. So we're not scattered around the web, you know, using disparate experiences.
0: And was that intentional for you to? Because you know, with businesses with such a crowded market, anyone can start a business, and and there's not a there's not really a barrier to entry in these. So it's it's positioning is so important for you to stand out in in the market of, of a competitive space. And is that something that you intentionally did and and how would you advise founders and entrepreneurs to think more carefully about that?
1: So I read a book called the content trap and it kind of changed my life. Hmm. It was basically along the idea of something I've talked about a lot of the digitization of everything means that everything goes to zero in value. So everybody can now make a podcast or a video, right? Three years ago, this was actually quite difficult to do. Now it's free. So everything goes in value, which, uh, which, which goes to zero in value, which means you make more and more and more of it. So we get overabundance. So the value of something that goes down. So I read the book about three years ago, and I kind of knew that to be true, but it made me think, okay, what is the moat? Are we just going to keep trying to build the best content ever? That's really hard to have to endlessly be the leader. And I realized what we'd done was we'd actually built community. And that has a moat. Community at scale is difficult to do. And Real Vision has done it. So once I saw that, I saw the big unlock, which is why don't we just over-service the community. So then I started doing the analysis. Who is the community? And what I did was actually I went to the Real Vision members and said, make me a video. I said, I know your demographics. You're on average 38 years old and you're this, that, this. I'm like, that means nothing. Tell me who the hell you are and why you use Real Vision. 300 videos came back. People wow. shot on their iPhones. And the first one that came was from a scientist a genetic scientist in a lab in South Korea the next one came through from an astrophysicist at the world's biggest telescope in the Atacama Desert a retired taxi driver somebody who owned game parks across Africa um, uh, investment advisor somebody in the oil and gas industry I'm like wow okay I've never seen a demographic like this before and so we put together a word cloud of everything that they said to try and figure out what is motivating everybody. And the two words that came out from the middle of that cloud were knowledge and learning. Hmm. And then we understood what we had. We had a community of the learning tribe. And so once we knew that, we could then think, how do we over-service them with incredible value? And that's why we launched, for example, the Real Vision Academy because people wanted education. People wanted to be taken from beginner to expert. People want control of their financial lives. They want to have confidence in their kind of future vision of themselves. So that's what we realized we could do. And we had a moat and the moat was community. And all we had to do was treat that community amazingly well. And part of that was the journey of Web3 as well, because Web3 is basically a community model at core. So it's like, it was so perfect for us So that's what we've been heads down doing. It's very difficult for anybody else to do this because most people don't have the community and don't have the community of scale at Real Vision. And we're still not that big. But as we expand, you build the community, you create network effects. And if you create network effects, you can create Metcalfe's Law, which is an incredibly valuable network. So that's really what's on our minds. And I think people need to do that. Step outside of what you think you do as an entrepreneur and actually ask your customers why? What? How? And think, what is it that I do? Because as you said, it's very easy to set up businesses. It's very easy to have competition. How do you do something that doesn't allow too much competition or gives you a lead time? You know, our lead time originally was long-form interviews. Everybody said, this is ridiculous. Nobody's going to pay for for interviews. It needs to be three-minute sound bites because nobody's got an attention span. That was the narrative, the the hypothesis of everybody and our hypothesis was well actually finance is valuable to people financial information is valuable because it's it's your financial well-being and you will pay for that and also people want more than 3 minutes because they want to know more detail more understanding because it's important to them because it's your financial life that was our hypothesis and that proved out so, you know, we all have to do these kind of hypothesis testing to figure out what it, what it is we, we're actually
0: doing. Yeah, I, I love that advice. You know, it's what does going-
1: The Economist, I mean, what does The Economist newspaper do, the magazine? The Economist, yes, it gives you information, but on this online age, yeah, there's some great journalists there. What it actually gives you is a feeling of prestige. Oh, I, I read The Economist. This has been going for a hundred and something year and the world's smartest people read it. All their advertising is about, you will be kind of one of these super smart people who read The Economist. You will have knowledge and you will have confidence in talking to others around you, particularly in your career, that you know what you're talking about. They actually sell emotion. They're actually, you know, it's not actually what's written on the page. It's it's fascinating once you understand the human emotion that drives things and what actually drives a business. You know, is Apple driven by the best technology? No. It's driven by this tribalism that I want to affiliate with this particular brand for a particular set of reasons that make me feel good. One of the reasons is you pay more for it. I mean, that's ridiculous, but it's true. Hmm. Because it's a social signaling mechanism, and we're humans, and humans are ridiculous.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Do do you find that um, in a world of Web3, particularly where community is really driven, how adoption is is, and and the moats that you're talking about, do you feel that community in some sense has a priority in terms of importance in in creating a moat versus a brand in 2022 and, and beyond?
1: Yes, I think it is probably the most important business model to rise. Um, I don't think people have understood this yet, but I think community is going to be everything. And Web3 is the big unlock. Basically, you're going to have to share and participate, share your network and participate in it with your customers, your community. So they are not customers anymore. You'll see the word customer drop from the vocabulary of most businesses because a customer is a transactional relationship. And we're moving into a world of a less transactional relationship and more of a relationship. So I do think it's probably a very, very important business model, and it will be the ongoing trend um, that we will see, much like the online trend was the trend that happened for the last 20 years. The next big trend is going to be around community because community has stickiness, loyalty, emotion, value, all of the things that drive great businesses
0: and great value. Yeah, Jeff Bezos talks a lot about when he I think I think it was uh was it Jim Collins, one of the one of the people that wrote um uh was it good to great? He was talking about how he unlocked the flywheel for Amazon, where it created that two-sided network effect of lower prices attracted more buyers, more buyers attracted more sellers, and it had that network effect. Netflix has a similar one where they allow you to um, have more content, they, they can buy more content and create more content, which is to attract more subscribers and that gives them more money to yeah, buy more Netflix content. Yeah, Netflix is interesting. Net- mm.
1: Netflix is interesting because they don't have a two way
0: relationship with their customer,
1: which is why I think they need to pivot their business model or they will go away. So, Netflix is essentially a broadcast model, but on demand. That's it they have to involve their customers to create a community or people will gravitate elsewhere because you don't feel part of Netflix. Netflix is not cultural. It was cultural for a period in time, Netflix and chill, all of that stuff, but it's not cultural anymore because guess what? In a digital age, HBO, Disney, Peacock, you name it, one after the other, after the other, and now they're all a commodity and you don't have a relationship with your customer. So what you have to do is the content trap more and more content, more expensive, higher production, and you destroy your business. That's the content trap.
0: Hmm. Not to put you on the spot, but if you were to be in the position of someone like Reed Hastings, given that you are in the world of uh, you know, Netflix for finance, how would you pivot a business model like that to make it more community, community driven? Curation is one allow the community to curate more than the algorithm.
1: Make them feel like they're part of a movement. So when you discover a great show, you should be able to help bring that to the surface, get people to know about it, feel that you're part. Maybe you'd have a reward system for that, which would be a tokenization. So we're mm. seeing Reddit already move this route. And you know we're seeing Meta move this route. Everybody's moving this route is maybe there's a reward system. So now you're a great reviewer. So Amazon has that with its reviewers, right? There's no reviewers on Netflix, really. You, you just can't do it. So there needs to be everything from content sourcing, how does the community involve itself in sourcing content that they can get behind, to content curation, to content promotion, to network promotion. All of those things can be done by the community. Um, so if you focus on that, then Netflix destroys everything. But if you don't, you're just going to be outcompeted until the marginal dollar disappears and you go bust.
0: Mm, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um, going back to this transition that you've had from, you know, being a bootstrap company from the start and then now really thinking about scaling Real Vision globally what's been that transition for you from being a founder to a CEO where you have to think beyond just the next month or the next quarter? What's been like the skill sets that you've had to develop for yourself? And what's been the changes in the day-to-day as you've made that transition from founder to CEO?
1: The hard thing is living in both the present and the future. Because usually when you're running a business, the present is broken and the future is the optimistic part. So you're always trying to fix everything now that doesn't work in the hope of going there. That dichotomy in your head at all times is really, really hard. It's soul destroying because all you can see is everything broken and periodic moments where everything's working magically. But you know where you want to get to and where you can get to. Mm. that that is so hard and the other founder to ceo is is them people you know you hear this all the time people managing people is not easy and there's different ways different people approach it um i try and approach it via kind of vision and empathy so getting people bought in on where you're going allows you to coalesce a large group of people at the same time to go in the same direction and you need to be empathetic to them and their and their own personal story, but different people do it in different ways. You know, if I'd have been better at being process driven, I would have put more processes in. You never realize that as a founder, you don't think about processes. They're like oh, they're for other Sounds people. Sounds so unsexy, for airline right? pilots, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But f- fuck, if you don't put processes in, you've got a mess. And everybody goes through this, and then you realize you've got a mess, and. You try and figure out the mess and you fix things. and You don't fix the processes that cause the mess. So
0: Mm.
1: there's, a—I mean, there's so many lessons to learn. I mean, it's, you know, again, you hear this all the time. It's endless failure because you just don't know what you're doing. One of the most interesting comments that's come to me recently was, I don't know who told it to me or who, who wrote, wrote it, which was a first time founder solves for product a second-time founder solves for distribution. Hmm. That's really profound. So anybody builds the second business doesn't go the product route first. It goes, how do I distribute this product to as many people as possible? Because building products is actually easier. And we're kind of re-pivoting Real Vision. We kind of refer to it as Real Vision 2.0 based around this one principle, which is if you solve for community, you can build the product with them. Mm. It's a much easier, a much higher probability of success than building a product and launching it and hoping it works. So, you know, you're always, you've always got learnings as a CEO and a founder, but that, that's one of them is distribution is probably more important than product.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, Naval about- And community goals distribution. Right, right. Uh, I was going to say, Naval talks a lot about the hierarchy of leverage. You know, a lot of people back in the day were really just had people, and then you had capital, which is kind of what you had with GLG and, and Goldman Sachs probably uh, in terms of leverage. And then you've got, after that, media and code at the top of the leverage with, uh, you know, particularly in the 21st century- and it seems like real vision, you have a combination of both, which is you've got media uh, that's built on top of software. And then you've got people that are distributing the media that you guys create. So you've got this like layers and layers of leverage on top uh, of each other. That's a lot of solving that for distribution.
1: Yeah. And I would add on top of the code layer, I would add another layer, which is emotion. Mm. If people care, If you can generate emotion from your community, that is probably the most powerful thing of all. Um, You know, I know code sounds amazing because it sounds so neutral. And so you just create code and you become rich. But actually, emotion is what is why Apple is a trillion dollar company. It's emotion,
0: it's not just Mm -hmm. code. And how do you build that into? the product flow when you're thinking about real vision. Um,
1: again, we don't do this perfectly, but you've got to think about how it makes people feel, not what it does. Hmm. Do you feel like you're getting access to privileged information? Do you feel special? Do you feel like you're getting smart? What does it feel like? And I, I wrote an email this morning to the senior management team about this exact word feel. It's, it's really important because we're so busy telling people our features. And the benefits is not actually what you get out of it. It's how it makes you feel. There's a fantastic quote from Estee Lauder from the Makeup Empire. And the quote was, at Estee Lauder, we don't sell lipstick. We sell dreams. It's incredibly profound to understand that what lipstick is, is an emotional state, of how you want to look, and how you want to feel. It's nothing to do with the lipstick, what it's made from, the color it is, none of it. And that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, it, it aligns certainly in a world of automation and code, and and everything being automated away. That really the best way to protect yourself and and uh, in the. Job uh, economy when everything gets automated is to be more human and to focus on those aspects. And it's it's good to hear that that's really the fo- thing that you guys are focusing on as well uh, and advising entrepreneurs to do. Yeah, I mean, we would we will build out AI and more code.
1: You know? We're building a platform, code, but our core value is community, which is emotion. And the combination of the two, I think, is powerful. Hmm. It's a hypothesis that we're going to test, but I'm pretty sure of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about money for a bit. Uh, you've got an interesting story because most entrepreneurs start their business with, in the basement, not a lot of money to start. But on from your story, you were retired at 36, and then you decided to start Real Vision and I'm curious to know, like, what is your relationship with money and wealth, particularly being in the world of finance and, and uh, crypto?
1: So I look at the world slightly differently because I'm a contrarian, as we've established. Yes. The goal is not money. The goal is lifestyle, quality. And that can mean different things to different people. You could be in a cabin in the woods in Appalachia, and be the happiest clam in the world. But quality of life is the bank that you're wanting to build up. You wanted that deposit account to build. Money is just a mechanism of doing that. And don't confuse material wealth with lifestyle. Lifestyle are the things that make you happy and make you at peace with yourself. It might be access to nature. Now, access to nature on an everyday basis can either be done in two ways. One is, you can afford to live in a nice place and have afford to have free time so you can engage with nature. Or well, the other thing is, is you don't do a job that requires you to be in a city. You do a job that's in nature. It probably pays less. These are trade-offs, but you could be equally happy. So it's quality of life to me is everything, and it's all we work for. And I learned that early on. I was in my early 20s. And my girlfriend at the time's mother lived in Mallorca in Spain. And we were there for a week's holiday or a long weekend. And we were on a beach out of season. And there was somebody grilling sardines in oil drums on the beach in this beautiful cove in Mallorca. Right. Perfect Mediterranean scene. And we were grabbing some of these sardines and a cold beer. And up on the left on this mini peninsula next to me was this palm trees and pine trees, typical of the Mediterranean, and a long table of 30 people, all generations. And they were eating paella on a Sunday and they were drinking wine and there were kids, grandkids, grandparents, everybody, friends, and they were having fun and they were outside and it was a very simple thing. They were just simple trestle tables, but just full of stuff. And I said, "That is quality of life. This is what I want out of life. How do I make that to be the that to be my life?" So that was my pursuit. My pursuit was that image. Is what do you want out of life? I had two dreams in my life. One was the Mediterranean because I liked the environment of the Mediterranean, the people, the food, the culture, and I liked. I like water. I like diving. I like tropical beaches, um, like um, sun. So that's why I end up in the Cayman Islands in Spain is is manifesting this quality of life. And so, yes, you can still get in the trap of wanting more and more to your quality of life. Um, But also, if you're fortunate enough, it's then looking after the quality of life of those people around you. Or if you're really fortunate, looking after the quality of life of the environment around you. You know, can you start using your wealth or whatever to protect the environment? These are all quality of life things. Um, And, you know, we, we have one journey as a human to go through life. You might as well try and make it the best you can, regardless of what that is. And it's not about money. You know, I first bought my first, I, again, story about Spain. I was in my late 20s. I was at Goldman Sachs working really hard. And I remember explaining to dad the story about that Spanish beach scene. And I said to my dad, I said, look, at one point in my life, I really want to buy a house in Spain. And he's like, you know, I think my friend is selling a house. This was lacking price, what the house was, where it was, nothing. It was just typical father comment. My, fa- my friend is selling a house. So anyway, so he sends through this image of this house, which is a six-bedroom house on a hill in Spain. Again, I had no idea where it was. I'm like, yeah, Dad, how am I supposed to afford this? Yeah, I was reasonably well paid at Goldman, but I'm like, but still. And he's like, well, let me find out. And it was £150,000, which was not a lot of money for a house, six bedrooms on a hill in Spain, kind of 15 minutes from the beach. So I got on a plane the following weekend, flew there, bought the thing, and I was lucky enough to be able to buy it in cash. Needed a bit of work on it and then i realized i'd won the game i now fully owned a house in a beautiful climate with an amazing culture where things were cheap and i could get a bar job i could fail in everything else that i did have a bar job and still live this perfect life and that was the that was like okay here's my deposit account this is my lifestyle is now locked away i can now move to the next thing because I'd won the game already. And that Mm. could be anything. It could be just the country you live in. Or as I said, the cabin in the woods doesn't really matter what it is. You know, it's a personal journey.
0: Yeah, I'm curious. Was was for you the bar owning a house? Because that's that seems to be the typical like American dream, right? Is to own a home. I, I guess I guess I could argue that you could have just rented somewhere at a really nice spot, and even for a lot of people that no, didn't have a hundred thousand.
1: Yeah, the problem is with renting is it's always somebody else's liability. It's always your liability. So somebody can take it away from you if you don't mm. have that bar job. You don't have a home. I can't express in this renting society now, because house prices are so expensive. I cannot express how settling it is to feel that somebody can't take something away from you. It's like this fundamental human need for home and security that it gives you. So again, I urge people to think this through and think, well, I can't afford the place in New York city, but could I live in Turkey? Could I live in Costa Rica? Could I buy a cabin in Appalachia that cost me 50 grand? Can I own that? So then I can grow my own fruit and vegetables and nobody can take it away from me. Okay, yeah, that's doable. Trust me, it is. That's why I did it in Spain. I couldn't afford to do it in London at the time. I did later, but in my late 20s, I couldn't afford to do it in London. But suddenly there I was in Spain, had my house, had the sunshine, had a quality of life. Perfect.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's finding these like life hack arbitrages in a world of global economy. Uh, I mean, I think a perfect example is to earn in a strong currency and to be able to live in a country that has, let's say, uh, a, a, you know, uh, raising inflation, like let's say Turkey or Argentina in this case. I mean, it's, you've got one of the greatest arbitrages, uh, in that world and it's, uh, Oh, you can you can double you can not only double the amount of money that you're making just by living somewhere else, but you could also live with a significantly lower cost. And um, yeah, I think I think it's it's such an exciting time for people that are freelancers, digital nomads, um, in a world where where you're where we're talking about acquiring riches. I think you made a great point, which is probably one of the best things you could do is to minimize your expenses and to be happy with living le- with less. Apples to apples, though, if you were to advise someone to be working in an industry or to learn certain skills that would allow them to acquire more wealth, what were would some of those skill sets, industries, or time that they're spending be shifted towards, so let's say for someone in their early 20s or even in their late 20s, assuming that they love what they're doing and they've done all the things that they've, you know,
1: yeah. It's, Yeah it's pretty simple. I got a piece of advice that was killer. I just graduated university, graduated in a recession. It was kind of very much like now. And it was like, you know, I had to get a job. And a friend of my father said to me, he said, bro, what are you going to do now you've graduated? What industry are you going to work in? And I said, well, you know, my father was in marketing. I'm like, I kind of like marketing. I'm interested in that but I'm really interested in finance because the 80s had just happened. You know, finance was like the sexy thing, but the financial industry was in a massive recession in 1990 when I graduated. Mm. So he looked at me and goes, Brown, it's pretty straightforward, your decision. I said, how's that? I said, I'm struggling with it. He goes, you can go and work for an amazing marketing company like Mars and you can get free Mars bars or you can go for work for a bank and get free money. It was like, it was so simple. And what I then rode was a secular trend, which was the global financialization of the economy. So finance became the largest sector of all sectors in the S and P 500, for example. And I was in derivatives, which was probably the fastest growing area. So I'd chosen a lucrative area in a secular fast growing market, bingo. So that is the advice, find the secular trend. Do not go into the oil and gas industry. You might get paid well now, but your opportunities diminish over time. Do not go into mean reverting industries, go into exponential industries, go where the tailwind is. That secular trend change, if it functions around commercial things, where money is involved, the outcome will be wealth fast-growing industry that generates revenue you being involved in that will generate wealth it's as simple as that it's not a complicated equation mm. so you just need to do that now what does that mean with the rise of AI um, you know and when you're competing against machines i don't know the answers, but data is one thing. Community, Web3, crypto, blockchain technology, that's another. Being involved in the application layer of AI, robotics, Internet of Things, the space industry, these things are all exponential industries, and they're all going to generate obscene amounts of money. So do that. Mm. Whatever you do, don't go and work for a television company.
0: Right. <laughs> Possibly even they're gonna die
1: down the road even Netflix, because they're going to they're gonna die unless they change.
0: Mm. Now, let's say they pick the right industry or they're heading towards an industry or trend that's not dying and they've, set, they've positioned themselves. In the next 10 years, what do you think is some of the more important skill sets, hard or soft skills, that an individual is going to need to learn in the world of rising AI, rising automation, all of these things that are gonna change how we work. So we have established between you and I that there is an edge
1: in humanity. So go travel, be outside your comfort zone, learn to question the world around you, learn to learn from others be open to ideas, be open to different ways things can be done. That is a huge unlock. Because people think they know. They think they know better. And you hear me say all the time, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Admit that you don't know and absorb as much as possible. Open your bandwidth. And that doesn't mean learning for the sake of learning. But certainly learn about humanity, how people work. Because in the end, everything we do is a human interaction. Even if we're creating products for people, we talked about the human side of product. So that is a huge life hack that people don't do. When I was at Goldman, we'd only be able to hire certain graduate trainees. And they all came from the same universities, Harvard, Yale, you know, blah, 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 Chicago, Stanford. They all dressed the same. They all worked for investment banks in their summer jobs. They were all the same people they were unemployable Hmm. because they had no understanding of the world around them. They were over-specialized and the world doesn't reward over-specialization. It rewards generalization because you have more opportunities available to you. Um, And so I would go and find anybody I could find from that list who was different. People who were, more sociable, that they would organize stuff, you know, where people would get together, pe- people who could integrate and understand other people around them. And they always did better. Sure, there's always the kind of nuclear scientist guy who, you know, deriv- d- develops derivative models and stuff. Fine, they're never going to run the firm. Mm. Never. The person, who understands humans, runs the firm always.
0: Yeah, even increasingly so, um, I would imagine as time passes by, right? Um, Speaking of specialization, I'd be curious to know, especially with your line of thinking, what you think about focus. And for me, when I look at some of the greatest investors, let's say Warren Buffett, who doesn't really believe in diversification, he really just does one thing well, If you look at some of the top entrepreneurs or Bill Gates, when talking with Warren Buffett, what's the biggest impact that they've had in terms of their success. And they've always said focus. And it seems like in this world of opportunities where information is flat, it's kind of, there's so many opportunities for people to explore and it's increasingly harder to focus. What are your thoughts on, on focus for someone that's trying to achieve great things in this world? And at what point is diversification, or, you know, the world of passive income that everybody's talking about? How, which, what 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 are your thoughts on all on, on this? Where, what, where do you stand?
1: Yeah, what people are doing is making a fundamental mistake of not understanding risk versus reward. Hmm. You have time is all you have, and you lose it every day. You are going to invest your time and your energy in something that needs to have a particular outcome. If you are over diversified in your attention, what you have is no risk. Without risk, you don't have reward. It's a simple formula. So you need to take calculated risk. So you may survey the landscape, but you need to assess the probabilities of success and then you focus on what gives you the most, the highest potential risk reward. Mm. Now it doesn't have to be one thing. It can be a few things, but that's anybody who's not focusing is risk averse. That's the problem. And if you're not focusing, you will not succeed. Probabilistically you will be unlikely to succeed because you are not taking a bet how can you not how can you win if you don't take a bet the world just doesn't take you there just because you get swept along with humanity you know gdp growth you know it's like 2% a year so maybe you grow by 2% a year well that's shit if you want to grow better than gdp you're going to have to apply your own time and your own intelligence for an outcome that solves for better than 2% a year it's as simple as that
0: yeah yeah um, and in relation to that, you know, the South Dakota talks about the dip, which is knowing when to persist versus to quit on projects or things that you're working on. I'm sure you've got a lot of things that you've got going on. Maybe it's a certain idea or ideology that you have. Maybe it's a certain project that you're working on within Real Vision. Maybe it's a company you're co-founding. What is that balance for you from all of the experiences that you've had of knowing when to persist?
1: It's really, it's really simple. It's really simple. It's really simple. Leave your ego at home. Question all the time. People get hung up on their ego. I can't. This is right. I am right. This is going to be right. You either run out of cash, which is one nice way of policing yourself, or the other way is just being honest. Hey, this isn't working. What should we try now? Do we think that tweaking it is gonna make it work or do we just abandon it? People are so busy not being honest with themselves because they wrap themselves in ego. Just go with the, I don't know, it's liberating. It's liberating to be honest with yourself. It's liberating to say, yeah, that didn't work because then you're not afraid of it not working. So you can take better bit bets with your time. You know, you might say, oh, I want to go to Harvard Law School. And then towards the end, you can now be a lawyer because you're about to graduate. But if you don't want to be, you can take that bet and shift your path and do something else because you think it's going to work better. You know, I just, I think there's a lot in just admitting it's not the right thing. You don't need to end up being that lawyer. What, what Harvard Law School has taught you is that you're smart enough to go and do something amazing. So go and do that other thing amazing that suits you better, that gives you a better reward.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think humans are so – we struggle with some cost, right? We, we struggle with the time, the, the struggles, or the money that we've spent already. And we just can't leave that behind with that uh, – yeah, it's a fallacy, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it's a great point. Uh, last question for you all what's uh what's a daily non-negotiable for you that you need to do to perform at your highest to think the clearest to be the most grateful to be your best self uh, that someone can learn from
1: i think you can probably tell i don't have (laughs) non-negotiables
0: yeah flexibility this might be a tough question Mm -hmm. the discovery
1: of life life itself The one thing I can't live without is sunshine. Mm. I don't have to be in it every day. I need to be around it. And I cannot survive without warmth and sun. It's kind of, it's just part of my soul. It makes me happy. It makes me relaxed. It gives me the ability to interact with nature. So if there's one non-negotiable in life for me now is I will never go and live in a cold, wet, miserable country like England again. Um, cause it just, I don't like it.
0: Well, you design your lifestyle around that. So, um, that's, that's definitely exactly a lesson right. people can learn all from. For it. That's it. Well, Raul, thanks so much for your time. This has been, uh, such an insightful conversation. I want to let people know where they can find you. Where should people be looking for you online? Where are the best links to people to, uh, to go to? Obviously we'll have all that backlinked as well.
1: Yeah. The easiest places to discover, um, me online in the world of Real Vision is is Twitter at Raoul R A O U L G M I. You can find me on Instagram as well, Raoul GMI, um, and just go to the Real Vision YouTube channel. It's unbelievable, so much incredible content, conversations with the s- most amazing people in the world. If you don't if you don't learn and come away inspired, then you know we're doing something wrong. But I know you will. Just go and check it out
0: yeah i can attest to that I, I went down the rabbit hole last week so <laughs> definitely a productive way to use your time on the world of youtube so yeah exactly. awesome awesome well, Raul, thanks so much for your time thank you guys for listening and uh, we'll see you next week